Lord Jesus, we thank you for gathering us together tonight, for bringing us to this place. We thank you for opportunity to be here, Lord, even for cars that drove us here and feet that got us in the door. We're just thankful. We ask you now, Holy Spirit, to teach us your word and help us to comprehend and retain and and understand what you want us to hear and what you want us to know. And I, I ask, Lord, that your blessing and, and that the, the seeding of this word will produce in us. Your blessing would fall on your people and your word would grow. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, all right, good evening. We had a pastor, Cheryl and I, or knew of actually, it was at a different church in, in Texas when we were going to school there, who was going through John verse by verse. He had been in John for two years and really was, I think was chapter five or something. And we had some friends who were like, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. It's one word, the, and he spends an entire teaching on the. So, Well, you're watching it happen, Vladimir Putin is amassing troops around the Ukraine, Putin on the Ritz. <laughs> he is uh, doing what you do if you're a power-hungry world leader. His obvious intentions are for a takeover of, of Ukraine. Now he's claiming he wants defensive posture there. I, I, you know, you might ask against what, especially if you're a globalist, what do you need to defend your country against? But he is pushing forward. He's doing the way they do it on earth. It's not how Jesus did it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, that's how Jesus did it. It's how God does it. I want to point out something to you, that eternal life he or whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is the phrase zoen ionion. Zoen ionion, which literally translates life in the age to come. Life in or life of the age to come. So what that says to you and to me is resurrected life. Life in the next age. Life of the age to come, he who believes, I keep saying he because it's, it, well, it's not he, it's he and she, it's whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have zoen ionion, life of the age to come, resurrected life. Verse 15 of chapter 3, if you look back there, Jesus said, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And verse 15 is the very first time of 15 times in the Gospel of John that the phrase eternal life is used. Zoen ionion. So now you know every time you hear it, we're talking about life in the next age. That picture of eternal life. And it's not just limited to the next age. You, tell you what, you have life in the next age, you have life forever. So zoen ionion. It's a beautiful phrase used 
primarily by Jesus, but while it implies resurrection to the coming kingdom and a resurrected life into eternity, eternal life, the way Jesus uses it, begins a whole lot sooner than that. In fact, we could say life begins at conception when you're born again. The moment you are born again, you begin eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal life. When does eternal life begin? With the second conception, we could say. You were conceived in your mother's womb and born into this life. You are born again in the second conception and you have eternal life. Remember the prologue of this gospel, John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So life resides in the logos, the word. And later on, John the Baptist, in this chapter, he will say, chapter 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Of course, he continues, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So you might make a connection there even before we get to verse 36 tonight that he who believes in the Son, belief and obedience are one and the same. He who believes has eternal life. He who does not obey does not, will in fact perish. But we'll get to that verse in a little bit. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. John the Apostle writes, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Jesus prays in John chapter 17, verse 3, and it's the last time the phrase is used in this gospel, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life begins when one is born again. We are yet to be transformed uh, imperishable, glorified, but we begin a new life of faith unobscured and hope secured and love assured immediately. To walk in eternal life right now means that my faith is unobscured. There's nothing in the way, not anymore. My own belief, my own rebellion is not in the way anymore. Now I can pay attention, now I can trust. Now I can walk with faith unobscured. Hope secured. Who else has the hope that we have in Jesus? Where else do you find that hope? There, there is no other. It's flimsy at best. A friend says, I'll be there. I'll help you with that. They may, if they're trustworthy. But you put your hope in that, they may not. With Jesus, my hope is secured. And love that he does, that love is assured. That's eternal life. This is where it begins. And my, my friends, it's germinating in us now. If you are born again, you've already begun eternal life. I like the old Switchfoot song called Afterlife, and the line at the end of the chorus is, I'm not waiting for the afterlife. Christianity is not just about the sweet by and by, it's about the sweet with Jesus right now, on into the kingdom, on into the by and by. So while I am looking for, longing for, and loving his appearing, I also love that I get to know Jesus right now. Worship him right now. Trust in him right now. In verse 17, continuing, he says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I wish the world understood that. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. 
He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light, this is Jesus, has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In other words, we practice truth. He produces fruit. We just practice, but he develops and he nurtures and he cultivates. That's why Paul says, by the way, in Philippians chapter 12 verse or chapter 2 verse 12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We've talked about that verse that it's work out in. Kind of like going to God's gym. Work out your faith. Do what it takes to strengthen faith. Work out your faith with fear and trembling, but then Paul immediately says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your faith. Practice. Practice your faith. Do what it takes to strengthen faith, knowing at the same time that you're practicing it, God is at work making it happen. So that, again, our deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I am doing, but I see, I realize even in myself as I'm doing what is righteous and good and holy and true, wow, God's doing that in me. He's working it out in me. Now, with that, this amazing, astounding, really powerful interview of Jesus by Nicodemus concludes. I think at the end of verse 21, although that has been called into question. In fact, you get down to verse 21, and there is a little bit of debate, especially about verses 16 through 21, answering Nicodemus all the way up to verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then John, in writing the gospel, continues on, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Is that what's going on here? See, the problem is, and the reason why this has been raised is that the narrative begins easily enough. We know Jesus is met by Nicodemus. We know they begin this conversation. We hear Nick talking. We hear Jesus talking. It goes back and forth. But suddenly, it's, it's, it's been asked, does Jesus stop talking and John pick it up? It's a question of black ink versus red letters, really. Which is Jesus? What is Jesus? Now, in my Bible, in, in my uh, Bible right here, I've gone through, and because my Bible didn't come with red letters, I went through and, and as an exercise took a red pen and underlined everything that Jesus said. So in my Bible, it's red letters all the way to verse 21. But it may not be in yours. And again, the reason is it's uncertain. Ancient Greek has no quotations. So if you're just rolling out an old ancient scroll and, and reading the Greek off the page, you're not going to find quotation marks or what they call orthographic markings to distinguish speaking from the narrative. So the transition here from conversation to application is what's in dispute. You know, is John now applying what Jesus just said, that those, if you believe in the Son of Man, that you have eternal life? And then John explains, for God so loved the world, and goes into this explanation, verses 16 through 21. Or is it Jesus looking into the eyes of Nicodemus going, Nick, 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Who's making the application, John or Jesus? And you know, honestly, it really doesn't matter. We can't prove it one way or the other because either way, the source is the Lord. Either way, God is declaring this, whether he's declaring it in his own voice through Jesus or declaring it inspiring John. It's still the word of God. It is still the declaration of God that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. This word is his. For me, it's all red letters through verse 21, but this word is his. So we'll just let it lie right there, but picking up in verse 22, we get back to the story, back to the narrative. After these things, hang on. After these things is that phrase, you Greek students know, metatauta. It's a huge phrase in the study of the book of Revelation. Metatauta moves you through the book, and, and he uses it a lot in his writings, just saying, okay, this happened, and now we're on to the next thing. So this is John's version of chronology, and it's important, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Verse 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. So what's just happened, remember, Jesus met with Nicodemus in Jerusalem at night. Well, now he's moved on into the land of Judea. He's left Jerusalem. He's left the first Passover of his ministry. And having cleared the temple, having confounded the Pharisees, and having convicted, I believe, Nicodemus, he heads out into Judea. It's interesting the way it's written that, that John says that he and his disciples came into the land of Judea. You might say, well, wait a minute. Isn't Jerusalem in Judea? I mean, that's like saying I left Oak Harbor and I came into the land of Whidbey Island. Thought I was on Whidbey Island when I was in Oak Harbor, you know. And you can think of it that way, except that Jerusalem is, yes, it is in the land. But from a Jewish perspective, it is always above the land. You come out of Jerusalem and go down to, into Judea. You leave Judea and go up to Jerusalem. It is the high watermark of spirituality, of faith, of, of nationality. That is the point in the land that the people go up to physically. It rises 2,474 feet above sea level. So it's up there a ways. By contrast, do you know that the Dead Sea Basin is the lowest point on earth below sea level? So to go from the Dead Sea up to Jerusalem is going to pop your ears, just warning you. So physically, it rises high above the country. Spiritually, it remains the high point of the land. So the psalmist wrote in Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So here in verse 22, whereas Elvis may have left the building, Jesus has now left the great city. He's left Jerusalem, he's come down, and he's in the land of Judea to offer baptisms, and by the way, with great response. There is a shift that takes place in the second half of this chapter. A shift from the Baptist to the Messiah. Jesus taking over, as I'm actually entitling this teaching. Jesus takes over. Now, it's likely that when he left Jerusalem, he came down and he went out to Bet-Abara. 
house of the crossing. The place, the same place where John the Baptist had been baptizing before, John's moved to a different place, so Jesus takes over right there at Bethabara. Now, let me clarify something to you. While it is Jesus and his disciples, actually John will tell us his disciples are doing the baptizing, while Jesus is there and that this baptizing is taking place, it is still the same baptism of John the Baptist. That is a baptism of repentance and readiness. A baptism of purification for preparation. Get baptized. Purify yourself. Be ready. Repent of the old life because the, the Son of God's coming. Messiah's coming. The kingdom's coming. Get ready. Get ready to receive the kingdom. It is not a receiving of the kingdom. It is not being born again. But it's a baptism of preparation and readiness. Baptism later into Jesus is the expression of our redemption. So two completely different baptisms, though both are immersion in water. The one is just get ready. The other is you've been redeemed. And it's a proclamation of that. This baptism, even with Jesus standing by, is pre-cross. Verse 23. John also was baptizing. Wow, they're just going all over the place. Baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. And we, that tells us a couple of things. Anon means springs. Springs. So he's baptizing in springs near Salim. Salim actually means peace. Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, city of peace. But this is just Salim. And we believe it's a town, it's a very well populated town, about eight miles south of another town called Scythopolis. And if you've, it was one of the 10 cities of the Decapolis. Before that, it was called Bet-Shan. If you've traveled to Israel, you know where Bet-Shan is. You've visited Bet-Shan. It's a huge uh, archaeological Roman city. Amazing find there in Israel. About eight miles south of this are these springs and a lot of water. That's the other thing to note in this verse. There was much water there. And people were coming to be baptized. So John's ministry is still cooking. You know, he's still got people showing up. They're coming in droves to get baptized by the Baptist. They needed a lot of water. Perhaps that's why they left the Jordan and went up. Because they needed the water to baptize the people to keep this ministry rolling. For John, verse 24, had not yet been thrown into prison. And that's important too. John the evangelist. John the Apostle, John the Gospel writer, he reveals something that we don't get from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Actually, several things. He's a very unique gospel as we've been talking about. But listen to this. John gives us in the first four chapters of his gospel things that happen before Matthew, Mark, and Luke start Jesus' ministry. So if you're just reading in Matthew... Chapter 4, verse 12, you would read, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And Matthew then starts Jesus' public ministry right there. Mark, chapter 1, verse 14, After John had been taken into custody, that's this same point right here, After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God. So again, that's where his public ministry begins, according to Mark, according to Luke. Chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, begin Jesus' public ministry 
in the Galilee. That's where it starts. If we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would assume his ministry began then. Guess what? There's already been a lot going on with Jesus. And with John, we discover that. It's supposed to be his ministry because as he said to his, his mom at the time, woman, what does this have to do with us? My time has not yet come. But yet he begins a miraculous work. The first sign, John tells us, happened in Cana. This is all well before he comes into the Galilee beginning his ministry, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John shares that. And, and these first, literally these first four chapters all take place before Jesus enters the Galilee and starts preaching and teaching the, go the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I find that fascinating. Remember that timing is a highly significant factor in the gospel of John and was to Jesus in his ministry years. Saying to his mother, my hour has not yet come, John 2, 4. In chapter 13, verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So be aware of this. Just kind of make this mental note, this spiritual note, that from the wine at the wedding of Cana all the way to the new covenant in his blood at the last Passover, that cup of wine, Jesus was on the clock. Jesus was at work. Jesus was moving intentionally, he always knew the time. I spent some time on this last Wednesday night talking about the fact Jesus always knew the time. Or maybe it wasn't last Wednesday. Was it two weeks ago? See, I have no concept of time. But Jesus <laughs> knew the time. And we did talk about this, being aware of the time. Oh, Lord, teach us to number our days, David said, with great wisdom. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Ephesians 5, 15. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time or literally redeeming the times because the days are evil. You know how evil the days are? Just had a discussion today about it. If you've seen the movie Encanto, oh, Rick, don't hurt my Disney movies. Yeah, because Disney is just so deeply spiritual and Christian. Now, I've seen the movie Encanto. I don't know if you've seen it. It's the most recent Disney movie, animated movie and all that. The whole premise of Encanto is a magic house and a magic family. And each one of the people in the family have magical abilities, what they call gifts. So in my family, and we watched it, and we talked it through, and, and I actually saw parallel. I like to go a, a different direction instead of, instead of saying, oh, it's, it's magic. I, I like to say, well, okay, let's talk about gifts. Let's talk about spiritual gifts. Let's talk about what is true versus what is false. And in this house, and I don't want to ruin the movie for you. It doesn't really matter. I don't care if you see it or not. But I wonder how many people in the church look around and wonder, how come I don't have a gift? Why, why does he have a gift? She has a gift. They have spiritual gifts, but I don't have a gift. I, I got nothing really to bring. That was my take on it. And I'm going to come back to that and talk about that in a few minutes. Your gift, the outpouring of the Spirit. But my point in bringing up Encanto is this. It's all about magic. Disney has always, always, always been about magic. So if you think that Cinderella's okay, what are the fairy godmothers? Or, or the, the fairy, she's a witch. Casting spells with a wand. 
So uh, this is the, don't be surprised. That's Disney. That's what Disney does. Hey, guess what? The days are evil. The world, the culture in which we live is evil. We have, I believe, a responsibility as parents, as grandparents, aunts and uncles, whatever your relationship is to children, to teach them the truth and to teach them to discern with wisdom among all these things that we see. Because you're not going to keep them from seeing everything. But we can teach wisdom. We can, as Paul said, we can redeem the times. Make the most of the times. I'll leave it at that. There are more things I could say on that. But at this time, what's taking place after these things, Jesus comes out, he's baptizing, he's moving in. Jesus is taking over. He's even using the same baptism as John. He is beginning in verse 22, and I have this marked in my Bible, Jesus is taking the reins now. John, the messenger, the forerunner of Messiah, had him. But now Jesus is taking the reins, not to mention the following of the people. They're beginning to shift loyalty from the Baptist to Jesus. You could say he's siphoning off members from the Baptist church. (laughs) John's board of directors, his disciples, don't like it. They're getting anxious. They're concerned about the durability of his ministry, as you'll see in just a moment. And I find it interesting because that's just the way we are. We're all that way. We cling to things we know. We get comfortable with a certain environment, a certain place, a certain way, and then if that starts to be threatened, we go, no, no, wait a minute. No, don't go. No, we need to to keep this going. Let me just tell you something about the Bridge Christian Fellowship. It, in its current form, will pass away. We're not going to be here forever. Our fellowship will be in Jesus. Our fellowship as Christians in the church, our eternal life, that's forever. But this current structure, the way the ship, we were very quiet between songs. I don't know what all this yelling is going on here. We cling to what we know. We hold fast to the things that make us comfortable. Jesus said to the apostles as they looked at their assurance, the temple, He said, Matthew 24, verse 2, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. How many New Yorkers every day looked out their window and saw the skyline of the Twin Towers and the very next day after 9-11 looking and seeing that they are not there anymore? As permanent as those massive structures seemed to be, See, that's how the Jewish people felt about the temple in Jerusalem. As long as the temple's here, we're good. As long as the temple doesn't go down, even as Rome had Jerusalem surrounded in A.D. 70, there were Jewish people saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple will save us. Even as Babylon had Jerusalem surrounded back in 586 B.C., They were saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we're fine. So long as the temple stands, guess what happened to the temple both times? It was raised to the ground. We can't hold fast to things that are not ours to cling to. This is why we've used this phrase so many times over the years, hold people with an open hand. if, If I was psychotic, I could keep a running list of all the people who have come and gone from the bridge. That's not my concern. 
Not that I don't love everybody who's come and gone. That's not the point either. But we hold people with an open hand. We're a fellowship of believers who trust in Jesus, who love to get into the Word together and worship together. But if God calls you elsewhere, you need to go where he tells you to. And if he's invited you here, then you need to be here. But we don't cling to the way it is and the way we do things. We don't hold fast to this because Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. So here we are in this, in this time of, of serious shifting, a major shift, an earthquake shift, seismic shift is taking place as things are going to move away from the Baptist and move into the camp of Jesus. And that's a big deal because John the Baptist's ministry was big. He was the first, listen, the first prophet in 400 years to actually come and look like a prophet and eat like a prophet, locusts, <laughs> and dress like a prophet and preach like a prophet, even, even to the point that he's going to be thrown in prison for his preaching. And the people were saying, that is an Isaiah character. That, is he Elijah? That's a prophet. And they're all flocking to the prophet, and on comes Jesus and everything begins to shift. It's a big deal. People are still coming to the Baptist in large number, but this other is on the rise, and his disciples become a bit resentful, maybe a tiny bit bitter, definitely competitive in their concern. Verse 25, therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now, uh, John's explaining something here. He's setting up the attitude of John's disciples. But let me just point something out here. <laughs> I find this so funny. Listen to verse 25 one more time. There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Singular. A Jew. I read that, and, and it struck me. It was the first time I saw it, because I've typically thought, oh, yeah, John's disciples and some, some of the Pharisees, maybe some of the Jewish leaders got into a debate and began to talk. No, it's just one. There's just one little Jew who's arguing with John's disciples, and it upsets them. Now, what's probably going on is they were debating the ceremonial washings. John the Baptist is baptizing, and this Jew's like, what are you doing? Are you just out here in the middle of nowhere baptizing people, telling them to repent? No, you go into the mikvah before you go to temple, you know, or before you write scripture. Or if you're, you know, super serious about it, maybe you, you mikvah or at least bathe your hands before you eat, but what, what is this? And so they're debating ceremonial washings and why John would do this kind of thing. We don't know exactly what was happening, but it, it upsets John's disciples. And before we see why, again, it's one Jew. It's just one guy. It is amazing how one person can upset an entire ministry team. And I've seen this over and over to the point that in, in my church life, when people come up to me and they say, oh, Rick, a bunch of people are concerned about how you're leading worship. My and I haven't heard that. But, but my first question is always the same. Who? Oh, a bunch of people. And you find out it's not a bunch of people. It was his wife. She was the only one. One little Jew. <laughs> We're so easily upset by things. We don't need to be. Just one. So verse 26 now, it goes on, and they came to John. So now they're all in a, you know, they got their prayer shawls in a wad. 
And they come to John and they say to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. Which is why I said he's siphoning off members from the Baptist church. Because that's exactly how they were feeling. Wait a minute, we're losing people to him. I know you said something impressive about him, but they're all going out to him now. And I love John's answer. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. John's answer, it's not my ministry. Someone comes up to me and says, Rick, Life Church is siphoning off members from the bridge. Well, it's not my church. And if that's where God needs people right now, okay. In fact, that happened. I don't know if you knew this. I'm just going to be really blunt with you all tonight. When COVID hit and we were closed, there was a church in Oak Harbor. Calvary Oak Harbor remained open. And you can debate or argue whether you think they should have or should not have. But there were several people from here who said, well, if you're not going to have your doors open here, we're going to go to Calvary Oak Harbor. And when I first realized, God may need those people at Calvary Oak Harbor. Let them go. Now, you all have come back, which is good. But <laughs> some have not. Some transferred over to Calvary Oak Harbor and have stayed there. And you know what? Honestly, truly, praise God, the word is taught there. So I'm glad to hear it. And if God needs to move us and shift us because there is something going on in the spirit that we don't see, so be it. And I just love John's attitude. It's not my deal. It's not my ministry. He had a pure, humble, and godly heart. Now, obviously, there's a difference in that he recognized they were going to the Messiah, at least as far as he was convinced at that point. He knew they were going off to be with Messiah, and he said, everything that I receive, no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven, or as it says in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. If there's anything good in your life, God's given it to you. If there's any blessing, he's given it to you. If there's a ministry opportunity or an act of service or your occupation or your profession of faith, loosen your grip because God's given it to you and he may shift things. He may take it out of your hands and give you something else. It's his. And Paul says in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. It's all about him. It's his stuff. It's his work. It's his church. It's his ministry. It's his kingdom. I just get to be part of it, and so do you. Verse 29, John continues, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. This is awesome teaching. Now his, his disciples, knowing John well, could hear that and say, okay, I see that. That's kind of cool. So you're saying we're, we're kind of like groomsmen. And we're the friends, but, but we're not. So, so that, okay. They didn't know what we know. 
Think about what we have been told and what we understand and what we comprehend about the bride now. And when you read what John just said, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. This is the first time in the New Testament where the church is called the bride. Jesus is the first one to even use the word church in Matthew 16. I will build my church, he said, about the coming church. I keep calling John the last of the Hebrew prophets because of what he says right here. He is a friend of the bridegroom. And again, even among the groomsmen, you could call John the Baptist the best man, but he is not the groom. And he is not the bride. Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because John is not the bride. The bride's always greater than the groomsmen or the bridesmaids. At my wedding, I had a great time with my groomsmen. We had a blast. That was so much fun. But when Cheryl entered the room, I was not looking at the groomsmen. When Cheryl was calling my name, it wasn't like, yeah, 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 in a bit, I gotta hang out with the boys. You know? When Cheryl's like, the limo's ready, I'm not like, yeah, we're playing basketball, so. It's just the, the friend of the bridegroom. That's John. And what was John's greatest joy? He even declares it this way. This joy of mine has been made full. I'm bursting. I'm overflowing with joy. At what? Note this the bridegroom's voice. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. His joy, John's joy was he got to hear Jesus' voice. He hears the sound of the bridegroom's voice. Revelation 19 verse 9 says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Those invited includes John the Baptist. He's not the bride. He is not of the church. He's of Israel. He's a Hebrew prophet. He trusted and believed in God. He is redeemed like you and, and, and me, but he is not the bride. He's invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, you are the bride at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's why you're greater than John the Baptist. You're the bride. And I think that's wonderful. But John, John's joy is hearing the bridegroom speak. I just want to hear him talk. What's your joy? What is your greatest joy? Is it the voice of the bridegroom? And do you hear the sound of it? as we talked about on Sunday. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when you provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. You could say a joyful heart is an open heart. Groom, You need to pay attention to the bridegroom. Listen to the sound of his voice. That's where the joy is. And if your heart seems to be a little closed off and you want to be more open, then you need to find your joy in the Lord because the joyful heart is the open heart and the open heart is the joyful heart, but many hearts are yet sour and closed off. Verse 30, John continues that famous line, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
He who comes from above is above all. He is of the, who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. Isaiah 57, verse 15. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Question is, are we heavenly minded or are we earthly minded? Climate change evangelism is earth-centric. And I'm saying that without even a shred of sarcasm or negativity. If climate change is your deal, then you are earth-centric. Climate change is about saving the planet. And a climate change activist would tell you that very thing. That's what we're about. We're about saving the world. It's tree-hugging, and even that I'm not saying sarcastically, because that fits. Why? Because tree hugging is for fear of letting go of this world. Guess what? This world is not going to last. You can try all you, with all your might to save the planet. You can't. You won't. When God's done, it's over. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said. So I have no problem with stewarding the planet, but the idea that we can save it is arrogant and it's missing the point. It is earth-centric rather than heavenly-centric. Colossians 3, verse 1, Paul said, Christians, listen, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that is, if you're born again, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The greatest salvation the planet will see, the greatest saving of the planet, is going to be when Jesus comes back and establishes the kingdom. And then this planet's going to be amazing. There will not be pollution. There will not be all the issues that people are so afraid of today. Christ will be on the throne in Jerusalem, and the planet for a thousand years is going to be perfect. And then at the end of that, God's going to say, let's do something new. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and off we go. Don't get focused on things that are earthly. Keep your focus on heavenly things. John tells his disciples, in essence, that exact same thing, that he who is of the earth is from the earth. And speaks of the earth. In other words, bros, you got dirt on your brains. You got earth in your ears. There is one from heaven, and he's above all that. That's what I love about Jesus. He's just above it. He's above all this earthly clamor. He's above, he's beyond rivalries and competitions and clinging to things the way they are and things of earth. And John very wisely is telling his disciples, bros, you got to let go. Because he who is from above is not like that. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. A joyful heart is an open heart to Jesus. But many remain sour and closed. This is a stunning verse. Verse 32 is actually should be an upsetting verse. Jesus 
has seen and heard it all, and he testifies of that wonderful truth, and he's bringing that truth for, to us. But, but John says, no one receives his testimony. So with verse 32, we recognize that the rejection of eternal life in Jesus Christ has already begun. It's already underway on earth. The inability of people to receive Jesus from an earthly mindset as earthly followers, this is already apparent. You can't do this from an earthly place. It's got to be heavenly. You've got to have a mindset that is focused on things above. In other words, even John's disciples needed to be born again or they weren't going to get it. Verse 33 he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Listen to me. Note this. Jot it down. What John is saying is to believe Jesus is to believe God. It's one and the same. If you accept the words of Jesus, you trust in God. If you reject Jesus, you are rejecting God. Now, again, that's very simplistic, but John repeats it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, he says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. If you've received the testimony of Jesus, then you say God is true. You, just by receiving Jesus, you declare faith in God that God is true. And when you finally hear Jesus, this is why the hearing is so important. When we finally begin to comprehend and receive and hear from Jesus, we have no trouble accepting the truth of the Word of God. We have no trouble accepting that the Bible is exactly what God intended to say. We have no trouble accepting the Scriptures as they are. If we're not listening to Jesus, we can start debating and, and, and trying to point out inaccuracies and fallibilities, which, by the way, there aren't any. But if I'm not listening to Jesus, then I'm missing who God is. But if I'm listening to Jesus, if I'm hearing him, God is true. His word is truth. How can I say that? Because faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17, and hearing by what? The word of who? Christ. That's where my faith comes from, from hearing Jesus. I listen to Jesus, faith grows. I dismiss, ignore, or reject Jesus. Faith cannot be developed. Now, listen closely, verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. That's another one of these wow verses. He gives the Spirit without measure. This has often been used to describe the generous and immeasurable outpouring of the Holy Spirit on born-again believers in Jesus. And I understand why this verse is used that way. And I even accept that that's legitimate, that God's outpouring of his Spirit is immeasurable on those who believe, on those who ask. But that's not what John is saying, and this is really important to understand. Listen to it again. He who gives, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The whole verse. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Over the centuries, God has sent many prophets, many messengers, right down through the ages. And, and to each messenger prophet, God gave 
a measure of his spirit. And it was always whatever measure of his spirit was needed for their prophetic ministry. Think about Elijah. Elijah had a powerful measure of the spirit of God. John the Baptist would come along as the last in the line of the Hebrew prophets and was given the same measure of the spirit as Elijah. Luke chapter 1 verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So the measure of the spirit that was given to Elijah was given to John the Baptist. If we had a cup measure, you could, you could even see how it, it's the same. John the Baptist had what Elijah had. Same measure of the spirit. Elisha came along and asked for a double portion. A double measure of the Spirit, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9, and he received it. He was twice as powerful as Elijah and had the tw twice the measure of the Spirit of God. So, so what I'm saying is the Holy Spirit is, has been given, was given to the prophets in measure, each as they needed, what they needed, as long as they needed for their prophetic ministry, for their prophetic calling. Ultimately, Jesus was sent. All these others were messengers sent. Then Jesus comes, and I want to let him explain this to you. So listen just for a moment to this parable. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vineyard growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He proceeded to send another slave. They beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Then he proceeded to send a third slave, but this one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. Listen. Jesus points out exactly what happened. It's such a powerful parable because it's exactly the prophets, the prophets, the prophets. They came, they were kicked out, they were thrown into wells, they were killed, and God finally said, I'm going to send my beloved son. Now it had always been God's plan from day one, but we were in the learning process. I'm going to send my beloved son, which is what Jesus says specifically in verse 13 of, of Luke chapter 20. I will send my beloved son. John's gospel refers to Jesus, and we're going back to this verse, refers to Jesus as having been sent from God. Guess how many times? Well, you can't guess, so I'll just tell you. <laughs> it's not even like between one and ten. How many times did God, does the gospel of John refer to Jesus as having been sent? Note this, 39 times. How many books in the Hebrew Scriptures? 39. 39 times it's repeated in John's gospel that Jesus was sent from God or he sent him or having been sent. All referring to Jesus being sent by the Lord 39 times. What's the point? 
All of the Hebrew prophets, in fact, the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures were sent ahead in preparation for the sending of the Son. And you know this. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Fulfill. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, as to your salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted, or indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And I would add John into that category. As late as his prison term, John was still seeking and inquiring if in fact Jesus was the Messiah if this was the right time. All of the prophets did that. Peter says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Listen to me. It is Jesus Christ who alone fulfilled the law and the prophets, right? Only Jesus. And it is Jesus Christ whom John is indicating here was given the Spirit without measure. Does God give the Spirit without measure today? Yes, he does, absolutely. But that's not what John is saying here. He's saying he gives the Spirit without measure. He is talking about Jesus. And this is vital to our understanding of this passage. John is indicating that the divine nature of this Messiah who was filled to the fullness of the Spirit of God. See, Jesus had, we've talked about this recently, he divested himself. Paul says that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. He divested himself, not of his nature as God, but of his power and his glory. He, as it were, set it aside. He left that when he was sent. Became as human as you and me. And I I don't want to beat a dead horse. I know I've been around this bush a couple of times. But listen, at his baptism then, what happened? I saw the Spirit coming upon him like a dove, John the Baptist said. And in that moment, what I'm saying to you, what I believe John is indicating when he says God gives the Spirit without measure, is in that moment the immeasurable potency, the entirety of the power of the Spirit of God was poured out and remained upon Jesus. Completely. John chapter 1, verse 32, John testified, he said, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And so John is saying, John is indicating here in verse 34, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Jesus was not measured out in carefully selected prophetic portions. Jesus wasn't just given what he needed for his ministry. He wasn't just given a portion like Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah or any of the other prophets. He was given the full portion, the full measure, the entirety of the Spirit of God poured out on Jesus Christ. Isaiah 11 verse 2 
even says it this way. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. For he, that is Jesus, whom God has sent, speaks the words of God. For he, God, gives the spirit without measure or literally it is not by measure that he gives the spirit to him. That's what John really said in the literal translation. It is not by measure that he gives the spirit to him. John the Baptist here is clarifying Jesus isn't just the next guy. He's not just the next messenger, the next prophet. This is God in the flesh. And he has the full potency, the immeasurable outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon him so that we will see that. At his baptism, Jesus exemplified what he and John the Baptist both called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we've, we've talked about this so many times over the years, but I remind you all that is not a Pentecostal phrase. That is a Jesus phrase. That is a John the Baptist phrase. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was not what John was doing. John's was a baptism of repentance. It's not what Jesus and his disciples were doing at the same time out of the Jordan. That was still the baptism of repentance. It's not, it is not when we go into the water today. Now, I'm not saying you don't receive the Spirit in baptism, you do. When a person is baptized, Peter even said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that outpouring of the Spirit, the, the power of the Spirit is poured out to whom he wills, when he wills, as he wills, and all we do is ask and receive. And that will become, I think, absolutely clear to you by the time we get done with this gospel. I don't have enough time to go into it any more than that tonight. But we will see this factually that there is baptism, and then there's a baptism of the Spirit, and you're gonna see how this works. But understand right now, Jesus Christ, already having the Spirit within him because he was God in the flesh. So by nature, he already was God. Jesus could handle the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit on him. I don't think any of the other prophets could. What do you mean? I don't think, if God had poured his entire spirit on Elijah, I think it would have crushed him. If he had given his entire spirit to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, I think it would have flattened them. Jesus comes along and Jesus could handle it because Jesus already had the Spirit. So when the baptism, if you will, when the outpouring of the Spirit was given, it was given without measure to Jesus because he could handle it. It didn't crush him. Here's the thing. So can you. Now listen. You can handle the immeasurable outpouring of the Spirit of God once you're born again. When you're born again, you are born of water and the Spirit. You're born of the Spirit. Now, now, as the Lord pours out his Spirit, he can do so immeasurably because you have his Spirit. And you can walk by the power of his Spirit. Already having been filled with his indwelling Spirit, we're enabled to receive the outpouring immeasurably of the Spirit of God. 
Now, there's another verse I want to read to you, and we read it on Sunday morning for a different reason, but I want you to hear how it concludes. Paul is praying in Ephesians chapter 3 that they would receive, that we would comprehend, that the church at Ephesus, but by extension us, would know the love of God, right? That, that, that we might be able to comprehend Ephesians 3.18, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may, listen, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That is the immeasurable outpouring of his spirit. Rick, getting a little wacky on us. No. God does give the Spirit without measure. Jesus shows us in his baptism, in his life, what God intended for his people. That we be born again and we walk and we live by the power of his same Spirit. What Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive in you. Will he not give life to your mortal bodies? The full outpouring, the immeasurable giving of the Holy Spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said in John 14, 12, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater than these he will do because I go to the Father. But it's not just about being gifted. You ever thought about that? Everyone else in the church has gifts, I don't. They all got their spiritual gifts. I need to take a spiritual gift inventory just so I can find out what my gift is. That is so lame. Can I just tell you that? Personal opinion, if you've taken a gift inventory, you believe heavily in them, that's fine, whatever, do your thing. But I got to take an inventory? How about you just ask Jesus? Lord, what is my gift? Do I have a, a, a spiritual gift, Lord? First of all, understand, it's not about gifts or powers or special abilities. It is about the Holy Spirit who is the gift. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then, yes, there are spiritual gifts that the Lord pours out and gives, but varieties of gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, but the same Spirit. Varieties of ministries, same Lord. Varieties of effects, same God who works all things in all. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Maybe he hasn't given you the gift you're asking for because you wouldn't use it for the common good. There are a few, I, I, over the years, I've realized if I had been given that gift, I would not have handled it well. I would have been like a three-year-old with a power tool. You know? But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So he's going to decide what gifts you have, what gifts you need, what gifts are given to you. He'll decide that. Don't worry about it. You can ask. In fact, in Luke 11, Jesus says, let them ask. Just ask. But again, the issue is not the gifts. It is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, without measure. Those who are born again receive the Spirit without measure. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let me make a, a, a translation there. Stress, strife, turmoil, hopelessness, fear, anxiety, terror, anger. Need I go on? 
Would you like to be free of those things? To live a life where those things do not control you? Eternal life begins when one is born again. So we're born again into our eternal life so that we no longer live the way the world lives. In verse 36, we have eternal life. Which means, by the way, that we're obeying the Son. To have eternal life is to love the Son and to obey the Son. To not have eternal life is because you're not obeying the Son. It's pretty simple. Eternal life begins when one is born again. Listen, we're not just talking about Jesus taking over a ministry tonight. We're talking about Jesus taking over our lives. Our very lives from morning up till down at night, is Jesus taking over your life? Do you you sense that? He's really taking control of me. He's got me. He's in my mind all the time. He's leading me forward. Where I would have worried about that before, I'm not concerned anymore because I have eternal life. Where I used to feel anxious, I'm not anxious anymore. Where I got down and depressed, I don't anymore. Why? I have eternal life. Jesus is taking over And note this in verse 36 again. He says, he who does not obey the Son will not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. We said on Sunday, that is an eternal wound that is self-inflicted. What has Jesus so far, don't jump ahead to John 13, but what so far has Jesus commanded that we obey in the gospel of John? It's just one thing. You must be born again. You must. And it's that use of the word must, and I told you in John's gospel, the only time Jesus says you must is right there. You must be born again. That's the commandment. You've got to obey that. If you don't obey that, you're still in the wrath of God. You're under wrath. If you obey that, you step into eternal life. You must. You must. The word is day. D-E-I. Must. From the root word deo. Easy to remember. Deo, just remember that. You Deo, you must be born again. And Deo means must here. It means literally to bind together as in linen wrappings, linen wrappings around a corpse. You must. You don't put a corpse in the tomb without the linen wrappings. It's a must. <laughs> but that's a must for death. We're talking about a must for eternal life. You must be born again. Let me tell you this. There are three must statements in chapter 3. Three must statements. There's only one where Jesus says you must. But then there's a so must. And then finally a he must. You must, so must, he must. Note these back in verse 7. You must be born again. And then in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The first must, born again, depends on the second must, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He had to be lifted up, had to be crucified so that we could be born again. You must be born again, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then the last must is verse thirty. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, you might count them up and go, okay, well, Rick, that just blew your whole thing because there are four musts. Four musts. There's you must, there's so must, and then there's he must and I must. Four musts. 
Actually, if we're reading Greek, there are still only three musts. When John the Baptist, get this, when he says, I must decrease, it's a different word. It's not must. He simply says, I elatuo. I elatuo. I decrease. He must increase. I decrease. He must increase. I become less. Now that's really cool because that is John the Baptist resigned to a great truth. He must increase. I decrease. Anyone here think that you increase your entire life? You get better and faster and stronger and smarter and everything just is always on the increase. I mean, if you've crossed about age 22, you know that's not true. <laughs> Many people think that into their 20s. Yeah. I'm just going to get better and better. And they just get worse and worse. He must increase. I decrease. That's the way it is, like it or not. And John, and I like this because John is not saying, I must make this happen. It's not forced humility. He must increase, so I must now force myself into this decrease. No, it just, that's just the way it is. He must increase. I decrease. John is resigned to the truth, resigned to what all along God said would happen, and we can be resigned to decrease into dirt. Everybody figures that out at some point in our life that we are going, that we're going down, that our bodies are not functioning the way they used to, that we are decreasing, that we are beginning to lose it, and we can just be resigned to that. Eventually, I'm going to be so sore and achy and grumpy, I'm just going to die. Or we can be resigned to decreasing physically in preparation for the resurrection in Christ. Yeah, I decrease. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised, imperishable, and we, who are alive at the time, will be changed. That's the truth. So I don't have to worry about my decrease. Because he, as he increases, he must increase in me. So even as I am decreasing, he is increasing. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So even though I decrease, he's increasing. And he must. And if you're born again, you get that and you just say, praise the Lord. Real quickly, chapter four, we'll just do the whole chapter and be done tonight. <laughs> I'm kidding. Verse one, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees has heard, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, interesting, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Chapter 4, he will be on his way to Galilee. And one more amazing, momentous event takes place before he arrives in the Galilee and joins up with Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the beginning of his ministry according to them. I think it's wonderful. Four chapters, John shows us what Jesus was doing ahead of time. But here, in these first three verses, and I wanted to kind of just peel into this just a touch why does John parenthetically tell us Jesus himself wasn't baptizing? 
So now he's left Judea, he's on his way out of Judea, and, and, and he, he, he wasn't baptizing when he was there. Jesus himself was not, but his disciples were. Why? It's very simple. So that no one would miss the cross. So no one would miss the cross. What do you mean? No one would be able to confuse that baptism at that time with baptism into the sacrificial of death, death of Jesus on Calvary. They are very, very different. And so Jesus himself was not hands-on baptizing. Why? Because anybody at that time, after the death of Christ, could go, what's better than being baptized by Jesus himself? I already see it these days. People say, what's better than being baptized in the Jordan River? I don't know, maybe clean water? <laughs> Have you seen the Jordan River? And yet there's something about it. We say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got baptized in the Bridge Fellowship in that weird rock thing, but, but man, I got baptized in the Jordan. Boom, mic drop. And if Jesus was baptizing, you know people would be going, baptized into Jesus right here. And they couldn't be because he hadn't died yet. It hadn't happened. That baptism was preparation. It was not recognizing the redemptive work of the cross. And by the way, it's exactly why Paul didn't baptize. And I find this very interesting. We have this mentality in the church that the pastor needs to baptize people. Uh-uh. No, I really prefer when others do. I gotta pull on those waders and sometimes the water gets in. No, I, really, I love to stand over here and watch it happen. I love when a father or a mother baptizes or a brother, sibling, or aunt or uncle. I love watching others do that. For one thing, it's not about the baptizer, right? It's about Jesus. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, I thank God that I baptize none of you <laughs> which sounds really funny if you stop right there. You know, whatever, Paul. He says, no, no, I, I baptized Crispus and Gaius, but I thank God that I didn't do any other baptizing so that no one of you would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the, the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. Christ did not send me to baptize. Didn't Jesus say go into all the world preaching the gospel? baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Didn't? I didn't. Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. Listen, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And that's why Jesus wasn't baptizing. baptizing. When we are baptized, it isn't even by Jesus, it is into Jesus which is far better. Why? So that Jesus might take over our lives. Last thing, how does Jesus take over this repent for the kingdom ministry that Matthew, Mark, and Luke say now starts up after John chapter four? How does he take over the ministry from John the Baptist? How does he do so, this, this, as, so as to avoid the appearance of rivalry or competition, the very thing that John's disciples were afraid of? You know what Jesus does? He left Judea, and he went away to Galilee. He withdraws. He backs out and heads north. And we're told specifically it was because, verse 1, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and Jesus wasn't about to turn into a competition. See, when Jesus takes over, he doesn't overthrow 
He doesn't surround the Ukraine. He doesn't flex his muscle and say, you're going to get saved like it or not. What Jesus does here to start off his ministry is he withdraws and he goes to see a woman. Just one. One person who needed to hear the truth of the gospel. He had an appointment we'll talk about on Sunday morning. But Jesus has come to take over. With all authority and all power and all of the measure of the Spirit, Jesus Christ, to tell you plainly and clearly tonight, wants to take over our very lives, every aspect of them. He wants that control. But he will not force it. He will not coerce it. He will not manipulate it. He says, do you want me in control? Do you want me in charge? I'm right here. All you got to do is ask. By the way, he will, not re- he, he will return conquering to rule and to reign, but he does not, will not force faith on anyone. And so I hope you simply will agree tonight, he must increase, I decrease. 